they muttered to themselves, they said, wait till the boys get home. They really saw that as being uh, their only hope. Krista Rose's new book details a piece of American history that's been largely forgotten. It's the story of World War II veterans who returned home to Tennessee to find a corrupt political machine running their hometown. And they come back to something that was much more like the places, the people they were fighting against than what they had been taught America was. And they decided to do something about it. You are the army of the free world. You're the arsenal of the free world. The Battle of Athens, Tennessee took place in August of 1946. Local veterans took up arms and opened fire in a violent standoff on the sheriff's deputies who were running the county. The book is called The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens and How World War II Veterans Won, the only successful armed rebellion since the revolution. And the standoff it depicts has plenty of lessons we can learn from today. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. Chris, welcome. Sarah, thanks for having me. So to understand what these veterans did, it's first important to understand what had happened to their hometown. How bad were things in McMinn County, Tennessee, in 1946? Well, in the words of one U.S. Attorney General, uh, these were the worst allegations of voter fraud that had ever been presented to the Department of Justice. So, you know, we hear the words voter fraud and fraudulent election irregularities thrown around quite a bit today. <laughs> yes, <And> we do. <laughs> the situation we're talking about in the late 30s and, and 40s in McMinn County, we're talking about poll watchers being forced out of polling places at gunpoint and ballot boxes removed to secure locations, like the prison or the bank that was controlled by the sheriff's family, with counting in secret. And so the results were whatever whatever the sheriff announced they were. And so really we're talking about the most brazen, over-the-top um, incidents of voter fraud. You can't even imagine it happened in America type of thing. Mm-hmm. And it isn't just voter fraud. Basically, once they had fraudulently claimed that they were winning these elections, they were able to just run roughshod over this county. You know, we talk a lot in St. Louis about policing for profit. It was still shocking to hear some of these examples that you found in, in your reporting. Yeah, police officers were compensated based on how many arrests they could make, and the sheriff was compensated based on how many people he could keep in the jail. So it was an incredibly perverse incentive for sheriff's deputies and for police officers to just go out and arrest people for any reason or maybe for no reason at all. In fact, uh, if you look at the numbers, after two years after the, so after the Battle of Athens, right, when these GIs are running their county and they've taken their county back, arrests dropped down from perhaps 100, 115 over a weekend down to 15. Hmm. So when you think about it, that, that difference is the number of people who are being arrested for no good reason, simply to turn a profit for the sheriff and his deputies. And that was just the money on the books. Like you say, once they could control the elections, there was no stopping them from raising taxes, from voting themselves big pay increases, from allowing uh, gambling interests and prostitution to run wild in the county with kickbacks for them. And so it was an incredibly profitable enterprise, and all they had to do was cut voters out of the deal. 
And and the guy who was basically at the heart of this whole scheme, this was a guy named Paul Cantrell. You have a picture of him in this book. He doesn't look scary. But man, what he was doing was terrifying. Who was this guy? Yeah, so he was the, the, the youngest member of a really prominent banking family. Uh, they had uh, they, they ran a utility in town. And so, like, a lot of, like, young people in these prominent families, he tried to distinguish himself and make his own mark in politics. He was inspired by FDR and the New Deal. So it looks like when he first gets into politics, he's got, uh, you know, ideals, and he's got legitimate things that he's aiming at. And he's running against this calcified old Republican regime that had kind of been in control since the end of the Civil War. Uh, But nothing changes when he becomes sheriff. In fact, things start to get quite a bit worse. So he really takes this this corruption, low-level corruption that had been kind of been thrumming along in this county, and he really escalated. Yeah, I mean, you might have had uh, the Republicans here cheating at the margin, right? But the ultimate test for for whether elections are stolen is whether the side that's conducting them loses. And in 1936, the Republicans lost the sheriff's race to Paul Cantrell. So Mm -hmm. even if they were, you know, playing around at the margin, they were still able to be defeated if enough people showed up and voted and made sure that their votes were cast. After 1936, that's no longer the case. People will try to observe the count, which was their right under Tennessee law. They're forced out at gunpoint or they're assaulted, and the ballot boxes are moved to these secure locations and counted in secret. And I got the sense that things really escalated when the young men of the town were away at war. This was a county that sent a lot of soldiers off to World War II. Do you think that was able, that allowed Cantrell and his men to run even more amok? I think that's a huge part of it. Uh, so Tennessee prides itself on being the volunteer state, right, on sending uh, its young men and women uh, off to serve in the armed services. And McMinn County calls itself the volunteer county of the volunteer state. And so if you think about it, it's a county of 30,000 people, and that includes everyone, children, the elderly, people who are disabled. So, and they still managed to send 3,500 of their young men off to war. It's a huge percentage, like over 10% of the entire county goes and leaves and, and, and goes off into the Pacific or off to Europe. And I think, of course, having these young men of fighting age really makes it easier for you to pick on their grandparents, on their younger siblings, on their mom and their dad. And, um, in fact, during these war years, when the corruption just gets completely out of control, people just give up on voting, and, uh, you know, the election fraud just goes way over the top, they muttered to themselves, they said, wait till the boys get home. They really saw that as being uh, their only hope, that these young men would come back from war and that they'd be able to stand up to these guys. And these young men ended up doing just that. It's so remarkable. This book, this is called The Fighting Bunch. I'm talking here with author Chris DeRose. Um, And you don't just tell the story of the corruption in this county. You also tell the story of these young men who were sent off to war, and you tell the story of what happened to them in war. In some cases, these are are some harrowing stories. Um, I thought it was an interesting choice that you decided to include just these vivid tales from their time away from home overseas. What made you decide to go so in-depth on that? Yeah, I think you can't understand that fateful step they took outside the jail, right? To march on the jail with guns, to risk their lives, to risk their freedom, and demand those ballot boxes from the sheriff. You can't understand that move, right, which only happened once successfully in American history. This is the only successful rebellion that has happened in our country since the Revolutionary War. 
You can't understand this singular event until you understand what they went through overseas to watch them see the guy next to them get killed, to lose their friends, to be injured and shot at themselves, to be asked to kill other people, and to be able to, to be asked to be put in harm's way sent halfway around the world. These were guys who had never left their county. These are guys who had never been over the county line into Georgia. They'd never been further than Chattanooga in this case. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and they're fighting in Pacific jungles, and they're fighting in European fields, and they're being told that they are fighting for the free world against the slave world. That's what they're being told in basic training about America. In America, we pick our leaders, and we're fighting against countries that are dictatorships, where people don't get to pick their leaders. And if you don't understand that these men went off and risked their lives for that proposition and came home to a democracy that did not exist, then you can't understand what they did that night in the jail. You Hmm. need that context. You know, it was fascinating. This is a bit of a digression, but but maybe not, Um, where you, you mentioned in this book that the first time some of them had ever felt full after having a good meal was after enlisting. These guys grew up very poor. Yeah, you know, we, 2020 has been a really hard year, right? There's no question about it. You know, my wife spent most of 2020 pregnant and working in a hospital. Um, it's just been a hard and stressful year for a lot of us. But in 1941, with, with Pearl Harbor, when the country goes to war, these guys have been sitting at home for a decade, right? We're over 10 years into a global depression. Mm-hmm. And these young men actually had to enlist to go fight off in a war until they had enough food uh, to achieve satiety. So, yeah, Bill White is in the Marine Corps. said, I'd never been full before, before I joined the Marines. I mean, these were desperately poor. I mean, really, when I talk about earning, earning the nickname the greatest generation, these guys did it. They lived through a depression and went off and fought successfully in World War II and, um, you know, and, and, and came back. And um, really, really incredible story. Our grandparents, you know, and our parents' generation just really remarkable people who suffered incredible deprivation mm-hmm. and really provided a great example for us today, you know, an inspiring example of collected uh, sacrifice, you know, looking out for your neighbors, of sticking together, of, you know, being able to put your own needs second, right? You know, these guys had plans for their lives, educational plans, occupational plans, plans to get married and have children, and they set those on aside and risked their lives uh, for the freedom of the world. And so I think it's an incredible inspiration. We really need the lessons from the greatest generation now more than ever. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, these guys, again, as you say, some of them had never been past Chattanooga, small-town guys. They, they end up in the military. And in addition to all the horrors that they saw, you discussed the fact they were also shown these, these Frank Capra films that helped them sort of understand the bigger picture, what American democracy was like. It seems like those civic lessons, that must have had a big impact on how they thought about what they'd witnessed in their hometown. Yeah, I think it's out of doubt. It's interesting, you know, Frank Capra was an, an immigrant. He was an incredibly popular filmmaker, very patriotic. As soon as World War II hit, he says, I don't care about that. I want to serve my country. And George Marshall, the chief of staff of the Army, tells him, well, here's really how you can serve. You're, you're a hit director. We need you to put together a movie that explains to these young men, uh, you know, most of whom hadn't even graduated high school. Mm-hmm. What did it, what, what, you have to explain geopolitics to these people. Why are we fighting the Nazis? Why are we fighting Japan? Why are young men from these small towns going to places they've never heard of and, and risking their lives? And so these Frank Capra films and other training materials that these young men understood, I mean, this really gets impressed upon them. You are the army of the free world. You're the arsenal of the free world, and you're taking on the slave world where people don't get to pick their leaders. 
and they don't have the same rights that you enjoy at home in America. And they come back to something that was much more like the places, the people they were fighting against than what they had been taught America was. And so when they come home and they see this all firsthand, they realize how bad things have gotten. Um, they really tried to work within this system. I mean, they put together this GI ticket. Tell us about this. Yeah, this is really remarkable. You know, we think about in such a highly polarized political environment. Try to imagine setting aside your differences as Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated, and working working together. These GIs set aside their partisan differences and formed an all-veteran ticket with the proposition that they were going to return free elections to the county, clean up corruption, and get rid of the machine that had been dominating their hometown for the past decade. And so they nominate five veterans, four from World War II, one from World War I, three Democrats, two Republicans, everybody running together on this reform platform. I mean, this is what they, this is what have been impressed upon them, right? You live in a democracy. Americans can pick their leaders. This is what you were fighting for. Now you're back home. Okay, that's fine. We're going to drive these guys out through the process of an election. And so they form this ticket that's open to all men and women. You know, this is Eastern to East Tennessee in 1946, but it's also uh, integrated, right? People of all colors are welcome to participate in the GI ticket. Um, and, and it's a really inclusive political movement to try to restore free elections to their hometown. And so it is really inspiring. Some of them, particularly the ones who are the most hard-bitten veterans from World War II, said there's no way these guys are just going to lose to us and walk away. That's not happening. Mm-hmm. And they, they called it. Uh, this election day... I mean, in some ways, this election day went really well for the GIs. They were able to get their guys to come out, sometimes at great peril. People were out there trying to cast their ballots, but things go south. Tell, tell us a bit about, I don't want to give away everything in this book, yeah. but, but man, this, this election day gets crazy. Yeah, so on any given election day, you know, the machine would have 16 sheriff's deputies or so, maybe twice that number who'd be special deputies for election day. They could count on the municipal police forces in the county. They could count on the sheriff's department from neighboring counties. Because they were part of a statewide political machine, they could count on the state police, even the National Guard if they needed it. But that had never become necessary. And so the GIs figure, you know, we can handle 30, 40 guys with guns. That's not a problem. The sheriff anticipates this and brings in over 250 men under arms on Election Day. So McMinn County is an occupied county on Election Day, 1946, and, you know, the GIs have been trained in all the, the rules and laws regarding poll watching. They're getting beaten up, arrested, thrown in jail from before the point that the polls even opened. Right? They're asking to see the ballot boxes to make sure they're empty before the voting starts, thrown in jail. And so this goes on throughout the day. Really, things come to a head in the late afternoon. An African-American voter by the name of Tom Gillespie. Now, once again, it's not what you'd expect in East Tennessee, 1946, but this county had long since accepted the idea that black people should be able to vote. So this mm-hmm. had never been a problem for Tom Gillespie. Before this, he shows up on Election Day trying to vote for the GI ticket, and he's assaulted with brass knuckles. This is a 60-year-old man, assaulted with brass knuckles, and shot by a sheriff's deputy and nearly killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the violence really spirals out of control from there. And, and so much of this violence, again, not to give too much away, but basically um, the machine doesn't want them to be able to count these votes. They have people who've cast ballots, and the machine wants to be able to do the counting without them watching. That's, that's sort of the heart of it. 
Exactly right. Um, because if they control the count, then they can just decide, they can just announce the vote totals. It doesn't matter what happens throughout the day, how many people show up or don't show up. Uh, in fact, a lot of the violence and deterrent you know that they used over the years seems almost seems gratuitous because no matter what, at the end of the day, they would take these ballot boxes in secret and then just announce the total. And so this is what they do once again. They manage to get the ballot boxes. Two ballot boxes into the jail, one into the courthouse, one into the bank building. It's controlled by the um, sheriff's family. And it looks like what has happened every year is happening all over again. They're going to count the votes in secret. They're going to announce the results. They're going to declare themselves the winners of the election. And that will be that. And, of course, there's never any appeal to the courts because the machine controlled the judiciary in Tennessee. There was no hope for these people uh, if, if the machine was allowed to count these votes in secret. And so that's why these a really small group of these veterans called themselves a fighting bunch, marched on the jail and demanded the ballot boxes. Because only if they had a public fair count could, they, could the GI ticket prevail. Now, this is just, I mean, it's a remarkable story. Again, you got to read this book, The Fighting Bunch. You can learn about what happened when these guys and their guns um, head into this jail or, or uh, confront this jail um, and try to take on these deputies who've just been running roughshod. And, and Chris, one thing I want to make sure to mention, these men that are doing this fighting, the guys in The Fighting Bunch, they are such vivid characters and none more so than Bill White. We hear so much from him in this book. His voice is so vivid. It was almost shocking to realize that he died before you started working on this. Tell us how you were able to get his, his remarkable recollections of this. Yeah, so Bill White, if you've seen the last four Clint Eastwood movies, uh, he's that character, but like 19 years old. Um, so the Clint Eastwood character from Gran Torino or The Mule, um, that's, that's a million-dollar baby. That's him. He's just like 19-year-old curmudgeon with really inside has an incredible heart for his friends, for his family, for his community. And he's uh, part of the first offensive action in World War II. He lands on Florida Island before D-Day on Guadalcanal. And he, you know, responds to the call for, for enlistments after Pearl Harbor, just days after Pearl Harbor. He enlists at the post office. And he fights all the way from, you know, Guadalcanal to Tarawa, where he's injured. And, you know, he's, I guess you could call him cynical, but like you say, he called it. He thought this was always going to come down to violence. And he was prepared to do whatever was necessary uh, to restore democracy to his hometown. And, uh, you know, Bill White, really, it's, it's, I think a lot of it comes down to the class issue in Athens, that after this election, you know, these guys had committed all these crimes, right? They'd robbed the National Guard armory to get ammunition and guns. They had kidnapped and tied up deputy sheriffs and stolen their weapons. They had um, firebombed the jail and, you know, fired, fired um rifles at sheriff's deputies for six hours. And so these guys were in a lot of legal jeopardy. And they weren't so keen to talk about this after the election. Some of them never spoke about what they did at the Battle of Athens. And I mean for the rest of their lives. Hmm. Uh, one of the daughters of one of these veterans told me about her father sitting at the Elks Club as an old man and listening to people tell stories about the Battle of Athens who weren't even there. So these young men in the silence, this this agreement they made to, to keep shut to avoid going to prison, um, it, a lot, it created an information void that a lot of people stepped into. And a lot of prominent people in town started claiming roles for themselves in the battle that never happened. Hmm. In fact, if you look at any article written about the Battle of Athens over the past 10 years, there are quotes in there from people who just weren't within 10 miles of the prison that night. Um, 
And so Bill White, towards the end of his life, really started to feel this was unfair. You know, that these people were taking credit for a risk that he took, that his friends took, his, his brothers in arms. And so he started recording audio tapes. And uh, started recording audio tapes for his family, started gathering up some affidavits from friends of his who served with him. And he created um, this, this incredible record that his family shared with me. I'm the first person outside his family to hear these recollections. Uh, of his life at war, of his life growing up in Tennessee in the mountains, and of the events leading up to and including the Battle of Athens. And so it was just an incredible, incredible treasure trove of information that would be impossible to replicate, because Bill hasn't been with us for a long time. And in fact, his his widow just passed away this week. I got the chance oh. to interview her on uh, on two occasions. Um, and so I was very, very fortunate. But yeah, it's, it's incredible. They were just firsthand recollections that I was able to include in this book that I never would have dreamed of when I got started. Well, it's so remarkable. You really have to um, read this book to get to know this guy, Bill White. His story is just amazing. And and Chris, in our last minute and a half or so here, I'd be remiss. I need to, to bring this back to the situation we're in today. We're hearing a lot about voter fraud. Um, we're not hearing nearly uh, as well-stated claims as what we've got here. But, you know, when we said we we're going to talk about this on t- on today's show. One of our listeners said, this seems like an interesting but dangerous topic in the current atmosphere. These guys were the, the good guys, but these are things that if they hadn't been the good guys and they did, would have been so terrible to democracy. Leave us here with a thought on what you take from this in this moment we're in. Yeah, so I think the, the men of the fighting bunch and the GI ticket, the people of McMinn County in 1946, would have loved to have participated in an election one we just had here in America, a fair election, a free election, um, which we absolutely had, you know, despite um, the prevalence of allegations, uh, voter fraud or irregularities, nothing happened differently in this election that hasn't happened in, in, in every previous election. It was a fair election, it was a free election. And um, this book actually serves as a contrast, because you're right, these guys are the good guys, but their situation can't be replicated. They tried going to court. The courts were corrupt. The judges were corrupt. Uh, they didn't, you know, they, 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 they lost, they had about the same winning record in court as the president does, except, the, you know, the president's getting fair hearings in court, right? He's got the opportunity to present his case before neutral judges, some of them that he appointed. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you, you can't compare the two. You know, these are people who are getting guns pointed at their face and driven out of polling places with no opportunity to inspect or watch the count. So, We've, we had a free election in America. We had a fair election in America. The voter fraud in the fighting bunch should serve as a contrast to the, to the way we vote today. And, Chris, I have to cut you off there, unfortunately. We are out of time, but I want to thank you so much for joining us. This book, again, is The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens, and How World War II Veterans Won the Only Successful Armed Rebellion Since the Revolution. Thank you for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.